and welcome to episode 900 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com and our supporters on Patreon. I am Ben Lindbergh of 538, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Hey, Ben. Got an email show today. Got some really good emails, some emails I'm excited about answering. Anything you want to talk about before we do? I don't know. So you saw the Sal, you saw the fight, you know. Yes. And Danny Machado, you're Donna Ventura. By by far the most interesting part of the the fight was Sal Perez letting it happen. Uh-huh. Like he just sort of just jogs very casually, does not try to he doesn't try to get in front of Machado, he doesn't try to to hold him or or anything. He just sort of jogs after him. Yeah. And uh, this was very suspicious and uh and a violation of the unwritten rules. But there's nobody to hit. There's nobody to throw a pitch at at Sal Perez because the, he's violating the unwritten rule against his own his own team. So, do you think now the Orioles are obligated to do something nice for Sal Perez? Is, is the reverse that they have to throw him a cookie? <laughs> do you think anyone is upset about this in the Royal Clubhouse? It depends. I, I mean, I, yeah, I think I think so. I bet so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for Even one thing, there might be some anti-Ventura sentiment. Well, I'm sure that there's anti-Ventura sentiment, but you can't. I think that probably you can't pick and choose when when you're going to be on your. In my opinion, you can pick and choose when you're going to be on your team's team. Like I remember uh, being in soft a slow pitch softball game one time uh, when one of my teammates uh, almost got into a fight with big dude, a couple of big dudes on the other team, and uh, and it was his fault that he was in the fight, and I remember. Th- wondering at, as this thing was about to develop whether uh whether i got to to i got to to do that whether i got to judge whether he was at fault and uh, i think that it, ultimately you don't you the first it's almost like chain of command right in 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 extraordinary circumstances maybe you break the chain of command maybe you even break the law uh however you have to be willing to pay the consequences for that you know that that's sort of the the principle of civil disobedience is that it's you know it's not just breaking the law because you don't like the law it's it's breaking the law and and serving the punishment uh for it and uh so i think that probably sal perez may have been you know issuing a protest vote but i don't think that that can go without consequences in a uh-huh. unit that is going to hold uh, even though i'm i might perhaps admire it but the other thing is that Without knowing that much about the uh, details of, uh, you know, the uh, dynamic, the internal dynamic of the Royals clubhouse, there have been times where you get the feeling that Sal Perez wasn't liked by everybody. Uh, like, what, what, wasn't he like throwing water at a guy during an interview or, or, or maybe he was holding, he was holding a water bottle for Lorenzo Cain pretending it was a microphone. Remember uh, that? Well, he picks on people in a in a fun way. Right. Uh, well, no. A, a regular thing for him. In a, right. In a fun way. But the reason I bring up the... Thing that I barely remember the Lorenzo Cain thing is that I remember you could just see just just pure hatred in Cain's or whoever it was his eyes, and you really got the feeling that while Sal Perez might be a leader uh, and he might have a reputation for a leader, you do get the feeling that maybe not all twenty four other people in that clubhouse agree with that, and maybe none of them do. I, I don't know. We don't know. So I'm not ruling out the possibility though that Sal Perez is actually not liked you i'm not <laughs> yeah, saying well, i'm not yeah. I, look i don't know enough to say that he isn't by i mean you know that you you hear good things generally but sometimes you do find out that the guy that has the reputation for being a great clubhouse guy is actually not at all he's really good at uh working the refs but uh that in fact uh you know he's sort of despised and i have 
uh, one name in particular in mind, but I'm not gonna gonna say it. But this is a person who was, you know, generally thought of as a great clubhouse guy, and in fact, his his team hated him, uh, and his his the whole organization hated him. And uh, I can't say that Sal Perez is that by any means, but I'm not ruling it out either. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, he had that whole series of Instagram videos where he picked on Lorenzo Cain and. Kane reacted sort of like Adrian Beltre does when you touch his head and you're never totally sure if he hates you or not or if he's playing the part. So there were some incidents like that. And and yeah, when you have a kind of prankster figure, often there are people who don't really care for it, even if they're kind of laughing along. So that's possible. But uh, but yeah, you'd think the, the anti-Ventura sentiment would be far stronger after he seemingly gets himself into these situations often enough you would think that maybe he should get himself out of it too the other thing is that you if you are a human in position to stop violence from happening then you should probably do it so sal perez can't even claim any sort of moral high ground here like even if this weren't a teammate thing even if i weren't making the case that you should stand up for your teammate you know, he's a big guy who had the chance to stop another big guy from hitting a somewhat smaller guy. I'm not unless he's, he's trying to stop future right, preemptive, meetings. right? Yeah, yeah. It could be so. that that he thought that the 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 moral arc of baseball fights is long, and in the end, yeah. Sal Perez will make sure it <laughs> bends toward not throwing <laughs> baseballs at Manny Machado. I don't know. Right? Yeah. All right. So let's start with a question that is a response to something we bantered about yesterday. It's from Joseph. He says, on my way to work this morning, I was listening to the episode in which you discussed Clayton Kershaw's dominance while pitching in the zone, and I immediately rushed to the office, ignored my growing list of emails, and read Sam's article. After the 4,201 gifts finished loading, I came away with one takeaway. Is it possible that Kershaw's reputation for dominance and good stuff precedes his actual dominance and good stuff on occasion? I'm not questioning his greatness, as he is no doubt one of the best pitchers of our generation, but in a sport that requires so much confidence to succeed at the highest level and requires just as strong a mental approach as a physical approach at the plate, could some batter step into the box already 10 or 15% less likely to succeed because they know how great he is? Thus, the pitches in the zone shock them just as much as us, as they expected a nasty slider on the black or one of his less often thrown curveballs in the dirt. I would compare that theory to the Tiger Woods red shirt theory. In his prime, the red shirt on Sunday was said to intimidate his opponents as it signified his dominance and expectations to win. As a result, other opponents would sometimes perform less successfully than they would against other golfers and in other situations. This is obviously impossible to quantify, and no athlete would ever admit to being intimidated, but is it an interesting theory? Yeah, I don't know that the red shirt is the same thing, uh, uh-huh. but I think that the it is an untested hypothesis that I could get behind for yeah. for two reasons. One is a little bit harder to to demonstrate, but could be real, which is just that if you basically if you go into every swing against Kershaw with a two strike swing, uh, if you're not you know if you're not really able to dig in and uh, you know and sit on that pipe shot, then yeah, you're not going to be as prepared to do damage to it. And that makes perfect sense. You could also argue that maybe, well, you could maybe argue that the opposite would happen, that knowing that you're defeated against Kershaw before you even step in, you might decide to sit on a mistake and just say, hey, look, the odds are against me, so there's no point playing the normal, you know, safe, grinded-out game. I'm just going to, you know, just going to try to shoot the moon. And um, and sometimes it would work. And so you might expect the opposite, and maybe Clayton's, pitches down the middle would be even more uh, hittable. 
uh, for that reason, but clearly that's not the case. And uh, so it, it's a fine explanation for why. But the other thing is just uh, we have seen that in a measurable way, I haven't measured it with Kershaw, but in a measurable way, players have talked about how, do you remember what David Wright talked about it with? David Wright, about five years ago or so, there was an article or an interview he did where he talked about how he goes up looking to hit the first strike he sees against some pitcher, which is not his normal approach. Uh, with your normal pitcher, you might, you know, you know you've got three to work with, and you know he might walk you, and so you wait for your pitch. But against this other pitcher who was so tough, and especially once you fell behind, and you weren't necessarily going to get any good pitch, and even if you got, you know, even if you took three swings, it might take you three uh, to actually, you know, catch up to one. Uh, he would swing much earlier in the count. He was basically looking for anything that he could touch at all. Uh, so you could definitely, you would expect probably for batters going up against Kershaw to have a different plan than against, you know, Kyle Loesch. Uh, mm -hmm. And there would be uh, ramifications of that. They could be good ramifications for pitches down the middle or they could be bad. But uh, it makes sense that if you're going up there um, kind of more ag more aggressive, less selective. If you're more selective and you're really sitting on that first pitch down the middle and you don't get it, you're going to take it. And if you do get it, you're ready for it. Then you should be able to do more damage than if you're being extremely unselective and saying, I'm just hacking because the only chance I have is three swings at this guy. Uh, then the benefits of having a pitch down the middle would be uh, a lot lower because you're not, you're not ready for it. You're not sitting on it. Yeah. It's a tough theory to test. I like it, but I'm not sure how to prove or disprove it. You could kind of, which is kind of what you're doing. You could look at identical pitches thrown by Clayton Kershaw and thrown by someone else and, Maybe you'd see that the identical pitches thrown by Kershaw do better than the identical pitches against anyone else. And you could compare with location and speed and spin and all the factors that we have to compare pitches now. But even if you did that, you still wouldn't be able to divorce it from the fact that Clayton Kershaw probably threw a better pitch before that. Or maybe his command was better or, or whatever. It, it would still be really difficult to untangle that and just see whether reputation correlates to something so i don't know but it's a good theory i like the theory i don't think it was david wright now i think it was chipper jones but it might have been david wright don't remember okay all right well we got another kershaw related question from andrew who said there is constant discussion about whether bryce harper or mike trout is the best player in the game today why is clayton kershaw never included in this conversation he is considered to be the best pitcher in the game today and most people consider him one of the greatest of all time Yet I never hear him being in the conversation. Does the fact that he is a pitcher, only playing every five days, detract from his consideration for this title? I think, first of all, I don't know that he's never mentioned. He must be mentioned sometimes in that conversation. But I would think that partially, yes, it's just that pitchers kind of get their own conversation. It's like this Cy Young Award is kind of because the Cy Young Award exists, you probably hear less about pitchers for MVP debates just because there is their separate award for them, whether or not that's actually how the rules work. That's how people tend to think of it. So I think people kind of think of pitchers as their own thing. And so maybe you say he's the best pitcher and then you break it out and say, well, who's the best player? And it's a different kind of conversation. But also I think, yes, <laughs> I think the fact that he does pitch once every five days makes him less valuable. 
I don't know. I guess if you if you go just purely based on stats, that is the case, right? His his best seasons by wins above replacement player are in the eight win range or exactly eight wins. And Trout's best are exactly 10 wins. And Harper's best is 11 wins. So there is a two to three win difference there based on the value stats we have. And it sort of makes sense that in a day and age where pitchers don't throw 300 innings or even 250 innings, that they would have a harder time being as valuable as guys who are playing every day. Yeah, uh, I, it's not a conversation that interests me. Uh-huh. I I I find I mean I just think that they're very different roles and for that reason it's by by sort of nice coincidence their uh, the value of a hitter and the value of a pitcher are close enough that it makes it look like you can compare them but they're doing completely different things and they are they should be measured on different scales in my opinion it would be like trying to compare uh, you know Mike Trout to to Steph Curry or even to you know. Uh, who's a football player? Uh, <laughs> Calvin Johnson. Calvin Johnson. Is that sure. a guy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or Calvin Johnson. Uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I just don't really think that you ever get there. You don't, you don't really ever answer the question. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I generally just prefer to avoid that. Calvin Johnson's retired, apparently. Yeah, Detroit Lions players have a good time at his wedding. He just got married. Congratulations. Congratulations, Calvin. So I, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that's why I don't mention it. I mean, to me, it's, it's fine to, I don't have a problem with other people doing it, but I would rather talk about how good Clayton Kershaw is as a, as a pitcher than uh, how good he is compared to a hitter. It, to me, it's just messy. It's messy. Uh-huh. This, by the way, Messi. I could have used Messi as the uh, other <laughs> athlete. Player. I thought yeah. about that. Yeah. Uh, so I and I, you know, that, that's the problem with the um, MVP voting is that I think that this, this, uh, that it's sort of to me, it's not a great thing to have the pitchers be eligible for the MVP voting uh, because of that, and yet because they are, you can't ignore them, and so then you have this weird situation where you have some people not picking pitchers or some people holding it against pitchers. I don't think the every five days thing matters. I, I think it's more that a large part of what pitchers do is collaborative with their team. And so it's hard to it's hard to separate what, you know, if Kershaw gets a ground ball to the shortstop and the shortstop fields it and throws it to the first baseman, uh, it's hard to know how much credit to give Kershaw for that ground ball. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, whereas it's not hard to know how much credit to give Mike Trout when he hits a, a line drive over the shortstop. And, um, so the way that, you know, I, the way that BP traditionally did it, uh, at least, and I think it shows up in all wars, uh, is just that it's sort of harder for a pitcher to, to rack up value on a batter by batter basis, yeah. um, for that reason. Now, I don't, I mean, I, I, the, every fifth day thing doesn't matter to me much because they, have an outsized role in that day. I mean, Mike Trout doesn't contribute to the Angels every day. He might play every day, but he doesn't contribute to the Angels every day. He doesn't contribute to them winning every day. Right. Um, but and, less of a role, obviously, than when you were throwing a complete game every five days uh-huh. or four days. But, like, for instance, uh, well, I mean, if Barry Bonds were had been the Giants' DH, well, let, let, let's put it this way, Ben. Clayton Kershaw pitches every fifth day, right, as yes. we've established. Uh, Yunel Escobar plays every day. Is Yunel Escobar more valuable than Clayton Kershaw? No. No. 
Of course not. So it's not that you can't be more valuable playing every fifth day. It's not prohibitive of anything at all. It changes the way that you count. It changes the way that that their performances cluster. But Clayton Kershaw, not only will is Clayton Kershaw clearly better, clearly more valuable than almost all players who play every fifth day, so that or who play every day. So that is a you know pointless distinction. But Clayton Kershaw also faces more batters than um, most batters will will hit. And then you have the defense, and so then you have that. But then you have Kershaw bats, and you have that, and it all just gets messy because they're totally different roles. Uh-huh. So uh, I just don't really like the conversation. That's all. All right. Then we will stop having it. All right. Tom says, as a Cardinals fan who lives in St. Louis, I watch nearly every game on the local TV broadcast. Seemingly every time Matt Adams gets a hit, the local play-by-play guy will say, Adams beats the shift. He does this no matter where Adams hits it, as long as it goes for a hit. If I remember correctly, he has also said the phrase after several Adams home runs, but I believe this is meant ironically. Well, that's one way to beat the shift. I know the goal of the shift is to get Adams out, and any time he gets a hit, he has defied that goal, but I feel as if there needs to be a stricter definition of beating the shift. In my mind, one beats the shift when he blasts it through the shifted fielders. A basketball announcer would not say LeBron beats the double team when he passes to an open teammate. However, after making this comment to my mother, who was also annoyed with the proliferation of the phrase on the local broadcast, she insists that one beats the shift when one defies expectations and goes the other way, and gets a hit on a ball that would normally be fielded for an out by unshifting defense. Whose use of the phrase should become the nomenclature in our shift-happy world? Mine, my mom's, or our play-by-play guys? Man, that's a good question. It is. I don't know. I <laughs> do not know. So uh, I I agree that it can only be one. Yes. We have to decide. Just, yeah. like, just like walk-off, I, I think I remember this, but walk-off used to refer to the to the losing team. So like when Dennis actually came up with the term, it was about the losing team and it, you know, it morphed to become about the hitting team. We don't use it to refer to both teams. You don't say that they, they had a walk off. Well, I guess do we, do we say walk off loss? Well, you don't anyway, forget the walk off. But... Forget I ever mentioned walk off. It's, yeah. it's not a good comparison. Ignore <laughs> the walk off di- uh, distraction. All right. It needs to be one or the other. It can only be one, and I'm not sure which one. I probably have used it both. I traditionally, I think I have thought of it as uh, going the other way, so countering the shift, yeah. and and then I going uh, into the shift. You'd say he hit through the shift. Yeah, through uh, the teeth of the shift. Through the teeth of the shift. Yeah. Yeah. But I think I actually think that golly, it, it see the the one shows if you go through it then you are beating it on its own terms. If you go against it, you're outsmarting it. You're, yeah. you're, you're going up there with a plan to beat it. And so one is sort of intentional and one is kind of unintentional. And yet it does feel like beating the shift on its own terms really is more beating it. In, in, instead of, it's like going around instead of through. Uh-huh. Um, and t- to me, beat is a, um, it's a smackdown. It's a much more active verb or it's a much more aggressive verb. Uh, and so I, even though I don't generally use it this way, I think that henceforth, at least until 12 seconds from now, when you start talking and convince me, <laughs> I think henceforth, I am going to say beat the shift for going through it, going through the teeth of it. Huh. And then. Well, so we can rule out the the play by play guy way, which is just 
getting a hit in any method when the shift is on is beating the shift. Yeah, yeah. Although, okay. I mean, I it's perfectly fine if you want to say, well, that's one way to beat the shift because right, sure. that's fine. Uh, I I don't know what verb I'm going to to propose for going against it, but I think um, uh, avoiding the shift maybe. Yeah. All right. I guess that's one way to do it. Yeah. I mean, traditionally, I have used it more often to say a guy bunted against the shift or he went the other way. He beat the shift. He he completely uh, he beat its reason for existing or he he made it extraneous because he stopped hitting the way that he was supposed to hit. And that is certainly a way of beating the shift. So they're both valid uses. We do kind of have to pick one or else we'll all be confused all the time and we'll have to specify exactly what happened because no one will be able to tell. So I think I I think I like the beating equals avoiding. I think that is, I don't know, that's the way that I care about beating it yeah more. i know if and you... that's it's the great it's the more admirable act too it's yeah, the, it feels right. like the one that you really want to encourage right it almost feels to me like hitting it through the i'm trying to think of a better alternative for if if we're saying you've got to hit even though you hit right into the shift like uh what would be a good term for that? I'm not... Overpowering the shift, overwhelming the shift. Yeah. He, uh, it to me, I don't. You, uh, I'm, I'm talking this analogy out as I go, so it might not work. But I almost think of it like if you make a trade, if you're a team and you make a trade, and the guy you trade for is terrible, but you win the World Series. Uh, uh-huh. you, you, you know, you won the trade, right? But you didn't win the trade because you, you did anything great in that trade. You won the trade because. The, you know, the mistake that you made didn't cost you and everything ended up working out and you got what you wanted. You, your ultimate yeah. goal was always to win the World Series and however you get there, you get there. And so, t- you know, technically you could say, Hey, we won the trade. We won every trade in, uh, in our franchise history leading up to now. But really to win the trade, you gotta, you, you, the player you get should be, should be good. You should get more out of that trade than you gave up. And, um, so hitting into the shift and just, just having it go through feels like that. Like the result technically uh, is a win. You you won, therefore you beat. But yeah. but did you? Did you... <laughs> you could say singled through the shift, right? I mean, that's a simple singled way to through, say through through the, the shift. shift through the yeah. shift. Yeah, yeah. Why do we have to say you beat any? Why do you, why do we have to give it a an a, a strong verb? Yeah, you're right. Yeah, singled through the shift. Right, <laughs> grounded through the shift. Lined yeah. one over the shift. Right. Past the shift. How about past the shift? Yeah, that works yeah. too. Okay, so beat the shift is when you go. I, st- I don't feel totally confident, but beat the <laughs> shift is when you uh, when you counter it, when you counter program it, when you're yeah. better than it. Uh, and otherwise, you just go through the shift or you go past the shift or you go under and around over. Yeah. You just go, you just hit, you just got to hit. Yeah. Just got to yeah. hit. I'm you know, siding with Tom's mom here. I, Tom is not wrong, and if Tom can persuade more people he's right than Tom's mom can, then maybe Tom's way of saying it can become the standard, but I'm rooting for Tom's mom's usage to become the accepted way. If you get a hit against a normal uh, defense, we don't give it a special verb. We don't We don't say he, you know, he beat the defense. He just got a hit. Yeah. And so if you hit it, toward defenders but it gets past them you just got to hit it's really the 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 notable act is only the guy who does something 
unusual to counter a strategy. And so, yeah, beat the shift is to go the other way or to bunt. All right. All right. Settled. Settled. <laughs> All right. Playing decks? Sure. Last week, we looked at the winning percentage of teams that were engaged in a winning streak uh, to see whether they uh, felt the pressure, whether they felt the heat, uh, or whether they got, as we would have expected, more and more likely to win the deeper they got into a winning streak just on account of them having uh, proven themselves to be a superior team. And yes. so somebody asked me uh, to do the reverse and see if there's any, uh, if it's exactly the same or if it's uh, at all different for losing teams, teams on losing streaks. Uh, and with losing streaks, the pressure is totally different. Instead of a feeling pressure to keep it going, maybe to the feeling that maybe you're flying too close to the sun, it is instead that you are losing confidence in yourself, that you are a feeling like you are falling deeper and deeper into despair and something has to uh there there has to be some sort of shift in uh you know in in inertia to um change your your fate so i did the exact same thing as i did last time i went and looked at all of the longest well all the streaks in history changing the time frame to uh to make it manageable uh so for you know 23 game losing streaks or more I went back to 1947, whereas for two game losing streaks, I just looked at the last year and a half. Um, and uh, in fact, it, it is sort of different, although, you know, not so different that I'm saying that it's different, but, um, you know, it's different. Um, so as you recall, the team that wins today, if you know nothing else about them except that they won today, they are, I think, 51.1% likely to lose tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I'm going to phrase all of these in, I'm going to phrase all these in winning percentages just to keep it consistent for the team that is playing the losing streak. So obviously if a team on a losing streak wins 40% of their games, that is exactly the same as saying that the team that is playing the team on a losing streak wins 60% of their games. So I'm just going to keep it all in the, uh, from the winner's perspective. Okay. Okay. All right. So a team playing a team on a, on a two game losing streak. Uh, wins 51% of the time, which means that unlike last week when teams that had won two in a row were much more likely to win three in a row uh, historically, this is much closer to what we would have expected based on our 51% model. Okay? Uh -huh. All right. Yeah. Uh, and then the line up is actually exactly what we were looking, more or less exactly what we were looking for last week and didn't find. Last week we found that uh, teams that are on winning streaks are much more likely to win, but it doesn't seem to get progressively more so the higher you get. In this case, it is. So teams playing teams on losing streaks. Two-game losing streak, 51%. Three-game losing streak, 52%. Four-game losing streak, 51 Five-game losing streak, 55 And I'm just going to read the numbers now. 55, 54, 60, 55, 59, 57, 56. Now we're up to 11-game losing streak. 12-game losing streak, 58. 13, 60, 14, 63, 15, 65, 16, 91. <laughs> That's an outlier, but... Big sample, I'm sure. Yeah, out of 11, there have been 11 16-game losing streaks, and only one ended on 16. Huh. Uh, and then 70, 71, 60, 67. And um, if you look at them as a whole, teams that have lost at least two games in a row win only 45% of their next games. So that's all losing streaks, two or more. Lose only 55, uh, 45, win only 45% of their games. Uh, if you get to seven or more, uh, teams on seven game losing streaks or more lose 42% of their games. 
and teams that have lost 12 or more win only 37% of their games. So once you get to a higher losing streak, you really are spectacularly more likely to lose the next game. Uh, and we didn't see this for wins. Uh, we saw a much smaller effect in favor of the winning team, and we didn't see it growing. So do you think that there's a difference, or do you think we're just talking about mm, small samples? Like, for instance, my 12-game or more losing streak group is 206 total games. What year is this going back to? For the high level, since 1947. Uh-huh. And so everything over, like, uh, eight games is since 1947. Huh. And so if uh, when we're looking at seven-game losing streaks, where you have a you know, 42, 42% chance of winning your next game, uh, which is much lower than we saw for winning streaks of the same level. Uh, we're talking about 2,300 games. So that's not, uh -huh. that's not a small sample at all. No. Yeah, I would think there's something to it. Maybe it's just that if you're on a losing streak, you're more likely to be impaired in some way, to have your best player hurt or something, or, or you're not trying, you're not putting together a competitive team, I, I think uh, it's easier to be impaired in some way than it is to be performing at greater than your usual efficiency. Yeah, of. well, like if Mike Trout got injured today, the Angels would get 10 games worse overnight. Yeah. But there's no equivalent of adding Mike Trout right. for the next, you know, for the next 15 days. Yes. Like that, there's no equivalent in the sport of getting 20 games better or 10 games better over right. the next two weeks. You just can't, you can't add a guy for two weeks, but you can very easily lose a guy for two weeks or yeah. a month or whatever. So maybe if you're on a losing streak, you are actually more likely to be worse at that moment than you usually are compared to when you're on a winning streak. I think that makes a lot of sense. All right. So that's the play index. And I think it was Tom who asked maybe. So thanks for asking Tom. And you can subscribe to the play index yourself using the coupon code BP. Get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. So, Philip wants us to talk about our old pal, John Lester. He says, more John Lester banter, please. No one is stealing off of him. What gives, gentlemen? What gives? I think he has developed an especially menacing glare when he checks first base. So this is a, a confounding one. John Lester has allowed five stolen bases. He's allowed nine stolen base attempts. With oh a, <laughs> which is nothing, right? So <laughs> last year he allowed 55 stolen base attempts and 44 were successful. And this year he has allowed nine and only five are successful. So this is the, he is the greatest <laughs> athlete in the world. <laughs> yeah. So I think there are a few reasons for this. So first I wondered whether maybe he was doing something different. And as far as I can tell, he is not. I was talking to Rob McEwen of BP just now. It's hard to find pitcher pickoff attempts, but Rob looked it up, and John Lester has not suddenly started throwing to first. He has not thrown any pickoff attempts. So he has not altered that behavior. And as far as I can tell, he is not getting rid of the ball more quickly either. They We don't have stat cast pitcher release times for 2015. We have them for this season. But I asked Inside Edge, who tracks pitcher times to the plate, and Lester's time to the plate this year is essentially the same as it was last season. So he has not hurried up his delivery in response to guys stealing on him. So I am speculating that it's a combination of a few things. One is that he simply hasn't allowed as many base runners this year. 
He's allowed a 255 on base percentage, and last year he was at 288. So guys are not getting on base against Leicester. So fewer steal opportunities. And league-wide, the, the stolen base rate is still it's dropping slowly, but it's dropping. It's a little lower than it was last year. I don't know if it's lower for teams that Leicester has faced. I think the, the Brewers and the Pirates are 1-2 and two in the NL in stolen bases, and the Reds are 5th. So I guess he has faced some stolen base teams. But I think the main thing is that David Ross is now compensating for Leicester's lack of pickoff attempts by making his own pickoff attempts. So David Ross has thrown, I think, four pickoff attempts. So so according to Rob, Ross has thrown four pickoff attempts while Lester is pitching, and at least one of those was successful. And I think this is something he's doing more now. I just I've searched Twitter for Lester and pickoff to see whether anyone was talking about this. And Brett Taylor from Bleacher Nation just last week tweeted John Lester showing his pickoff move, aka David Ross throwing behind the runner. So I think this is something that Ross is doing. And Ross is not like a, a, a savant at restricting the running game. He's his throwing runs the last couple of years, according to BP, have not been above average. He hasn't had a great stolen base percentage or anything. But it does seem like he is compensating by being the person who makes pickoff attempts because Lester is not that person. So combination of those things, even so, <laughs> you'd have to think that got to be some more opportunities to steal against Lester. But I'm, I don't know. You could check the lead length against Lester. StatCast has that. I have not done that. But maybe guys are getting smaller leads against him this year because of Ross backpicking. Yeah. I mean, there's only there's two things that would keep players from stealing against Lester. Or there's, I guess, sorry, there's two, two ways that a player should be able to steal more against Lester. One is take a much, much larger lead like that old Photoshop of Billy Hamilton. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or being, you know, more confident that you could leave on first move. And the latter one would have nothing to do with David Ross. If you're going on first move, you're going on first move. Yeah. Um, and a back pick uh, would not would not get you because you'd be on second. Yeah. Uh, and as to a larger lead, you only need a larger lead on the one where you're going. Although, yeah. you know, maybe you don't always go because maybe you don't get a good jump. Uh, but still, like, it seems hard to think that you'd be that prone to getting picked off just because you took an extra two-foot lead against Leicester. Especially if you know you're not going, you can still get back. And you don't have to take as big a secondary lead if you know you've already got two extra feet. And it seems like... And and if he's not picking guys off, then he's... I mean, he's keeping guys who are not going closer. Uh-huh. Maybe like the uh, the threat of back pick would keep a guy who is not stealing closer. But we're talking about guys who are not stealing. Like why why aren't they why aren't they stealing? Yeah, right. Ah, uh, it continues it, to be a mystery. He's Kilgrave. <laughs> so he's just telling people not to take leads against I, him. I think he is. Yeah. <laughs> I always wondered why people don't just wear headphones when they're going against Kilgrave, which is a very common thing to wonder. I think that came up later in Jessica Jones. But yeah, I I am <laughs> equally mystified by the Lester thing as I am by the not wearing headphones against Kilgrave. I don't know <laughs> why uh, Ross is probably contributing to this. Fewer base runners 
got to be contributing to this. I mean, but clearly, so. yeah, clearly Lester's got Lester does some things to uh, limit the running game on his own. Otherwise, it would be it would be crazy, right? So he is quick to the plate and he does stare you down very well and he alters his timing well and those things help. And so, but the thing is that he not only doesn't give, well, there's, there, there are two things. One well, is that those things shouldn't help though, right? Cause if you're right, I mean, it, staring it, down it, doesn't it, matter if he's not going to throw. It, it shouldn't matter. Although adjusting your timing does though. Yeah. Uh, right. but the two reasons that it, uh, the two notable things are that this was all basically there. Last year he was doing a lot of staring and he had a quick delivery to the plate and guys ran crazy off him. Uh-huh. And so, the, you know, this is another one of those things where, like, any explanation that you have, you, you have to run it through the, well, why didn't it work last year? But the other thing is that it's not just that guys aren't stealing against him. It's that when they do, they're getting caught. So you can't even argue that they should be stealing against him more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to I'm gonna look into this a little more, I think. But it is because last year should have been, should have egged everyone on. Last year was a validation of the you can run on Lester theory. Everyone noticed that he never throws over. That circulated around the league. And guys ran on him more than they had against any other left-handed starting pitcher. And it worked out just fine. And so that should have encouraged people to do it even more, if anything, this year. And the opposite has happened. I mean, they're having less success against him and less willingness to run against him now than... Before anyone knew that Lester didn't throw over in uh, in 2014, there were 21 attempts against Lester and 16 were successful, and that was before everyone knew about the fun fact and it became national news and everyone was watching for it. Now everyone knows and no one is trying to steal and no one is successful. So unbelievable! <laughs> I'll just say it again: greatest athlete in the world. <laughs> Uh, all right. Uh, we'll wrap up with a couple uh, participatory journalism questions. So Olaf Jorgensen, a Patreon supporter, asks us, he says, after hearing you two discuss the fact that Sam is maybe a half step slower than the two elder Molina brothers and Sam's statement that a random guy like Trevor Plouffe would be one of the fastest runners most non-professional athletes had ever met, I've started to notice how close a lot of plays at second base are even on balls hit to the fence. That makes me wonder, assuming the outfielder does not misplay the ball and it doesn't take a crazy bounce, where would I or the two of you need to hit a ball in a major league stadium to end up with a double? Let's say the outfielders in this hypothetical have league average range, arms, release times, etc. Are there any stadiums in which you think you wouldn't be able to hit a double anywhere in the park? I am a fit, reasonably athletic 34-year-old man, and I am not certain that I could hit a ball to any part of the park in Baltimore or Cincinnati and end up safely at second base. What do you think? Well, I don't, I disagree with this. I think that most doubles, a large percentage of doubles, at least certainly some doubles, are just not close at all. And if Uh you, if you really, if you hit one down the line and the, you know, the outfielders are playing straight up, you're going to be fine. I think you're going to, you'll, you'll go in probably standing up. Yeah. Uh The problem though is that no outfielder would be playing you straight up. They would be playing you uh, maybe 40 feet more shallow than they would play a pitcher. (laughs) And uh, they would probably be playing uh, like the right fielder would be on the line. (laughs) And 
expecting you to, you know, be late on it. And so it's going to be really hard to get a double on anything that doesn't go over their heads if they're playing that shallow. Yeah. And so you just have to go over their head. And if you go over their head, then you'll get a double. You, and you, you never ever will. <laughs> right. But yes, you could hit a, I mean, you could hit baseballs to many parts of the park. Uh, if you could hit them there and get a double, you know, look, there's guy, slow guys get triples. What percentage of the Molina's doubles were stand up? I would bet almost all because the Molina's, I don't think, do a lot of uh, aggressive base running. Uh huh. So probably when they got one, it was probably pretty easy send. Uh-huh. Uh, and you know, they got triples. They both, they all got triples. So if, if the Molina's got triples and you could hit a ball where they hit those triples, then you certainly would be able to get a double. But, you know, it's hard to hit it where they hit it. Yeah. All right. And last question is from Daniel, who says, Calling balls and strikes is pretty hard. Not hitting hard, but I think much harder than people give it credit. And generally speaking, umpires are pretty good at it. If you two had to call balls and strikes tonight at a major league game, how good do you think you would be? You have all day to prepare, but no more. So umpires are something like 90%. The good umpires are, uh, you know, between like high 80s and 90% correct, according to pitch FX strike zones. And I think that's maybe not taking into account for the fact that they uh, they switch things up as the count progresses and and they do things that a computer wouldn't do. But still, let's let's just say that a good umpire is 9 out of 10. So how many would I get in my first hundred? Yeah. Correct? Yeah. Um, just, I mean, I would. I think I would do significantly better if I were doing this uh, just in a laboratory somewhere with no one watching and you had a, a batter and a pitcher and a catcher but no no stakes and no national audience watching. The the nerves would definitely get to me to Where some would extent you, in my w- first attempt here. If you had to do this and you could stand anywhere you wanted for the best results, where would you stand? Like, would you would you stand where the normal umpire does, right behind the catcher? Would you stand behind the mound? Would you <laughs> oh. sit in the front row of the seats or even up higher so that you have a, a view, a little bit of a broader view? Huh. Yeah, I'd probably I'd stand behind the mound. Maybe I'd even uh, sit out in center field. I'd probably maybe I'd sit out in center field so that it could be close to the TV angle I'm used to. And, yeah, uh, and you know, have a telescope or something. I think if you were out in center field, you'd do pretty well. Or if you were standing at second base, you'd do pretty well. When we were scouting Stompers games, um, we would sit, you know, right behind home plate, um, you know, fifteen feet behind the umpire. And we would have to chart where the pitch was. And sometimes, you know, we would do these in, in, in pair, like there'd be more, two or more of us out there. And, uh, sometimes I'd look over and, uh, there'd be a pitch that, you know, was swung on and missed that was inside. And the guy, you know, the, the scout would mark it outside or vice versa. I might mark it outside. And somebody else was like, that was inside. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so we didn't do a great, now partly that's that, because that we were tough because you're multitasking and you're multitasking record and this, the, the result. And, and, and yeah. And usually I think the swing, uh, you're, there's a tendency for us to watch the swing. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so it, it was always much harder on pitches where there was a swing, but, um, even then we, I would say that we weren't, I was never that confident in saying even where the pitch was when I was just basically doing umpire work. I was basically yeah. trying to decide where the pitch was. I I don't know. I I mean most pitches are still fairly easy to call. I mean every now and then you see an umpire 
blow one that is just, you know, right down the middle or, or very, very obvious. And Jeff Sullivan will write a post about <laughs> what a, what a outlier call it was. So that happens every now and then, but most calls are, you know, every umpire gets them right. Or it's, it's just, it's the borderline calls that I think distinguish the best umpires from the, the worst umpires, but all umpires are pretty good. Whereas we would not be, we would not have any practice in doing this. So I don't know whether we would blow really obvious ones. Like, would we blow ones right down the middle or way outside or something? I, I don't I don't think we would do that regularly. So most calls are fairly obvious, I think. So, I mean, we would blow a lot of borderline calls, I think, many more than a practiced umpire would. But we'd still get, I don't know what percentage of calls are just obvious, obvious uncontested calls well how many how many would it take before your eyes were even open if you were standing where the umpire (laughs) is like serious question (laughs) yeah right well i don't know Uh, i've never really been in that situation so it's hard to say i mean yeah i'd flinch for sure on you know foul tips and stuff i'd I'd be uh that would be part of it i don't have any way of saying i think i'll say 70 uh 76 percent accuracy yeah that's I was yeah I was gonna say seventy five, so all right so something like that but we don't know in that situation it might be overwhelming in some way that we hadn't anticipated and of course if if you're actually in a major league game and you have the cameras on you and everyone's watching and the stadium is hard on umps to begin with so if they know that you are some some dummy who's never done this before they're gonna be riding you even harder and. The players are not going to respect you at all, so they're going to be challenging everything. And so you're going to have to deal with angry big leaguers. And so all that's going to be in your head. So it might be even worse the first time. Now, as a kind of middle uh, approach to answering this question, uh, we, you and I are, are, are supremely unqualified. Major League umpires are the most qualified. We did have a lot of experience with um, Pacific Association umpires. And you and I had different conclusions about how good they were. You, I think, generally thought they were uh, terrible at their job. And I generally was amazed at how close – like, I think that they intentionally had somewhat bigger strike zones uh, than a major league umpire did. That was my sense. But um, I actually thought that they were fairly consistent. And uh, I would say that the gap between them and the major league umpires was – maybe not as big as the gap between our players and major league players for instance Uh uh-huh i didn't have that strong an opinion there were definitely certain i felt like the the bad calls were worse or there were they were 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 much worse the field umpires were horrible oh well yeah (laughs) so bad like just unbelievably bad and that's i think that's because the you know the 360 degree nature of being a field umpire makes it a lot easier for you to just like get disoriented and just have this real blind spot glitch. You can't just tunnel into this one task that you're doing. And they would do things that were so bad, so unexplainable. And then they would also overturn calls for no reason. (laughs) Like, like I, there, I don't know if you were at either of these, but there was like a three game stretch where in Vallejo, where I think we saw three calls at first get overturned. <laughs> Just routine call, like a runner, base runner at first. And, you know, they were, in. A, I think it probably in all three cases, they were terrible calls that 
were wrong. But it's just like the manager goes out and goes like, you got that wrong. And they overturned it, like, which is the weirdest thing. And not even always, not even always like coordinating with their partner. Like they would just be like, oh, well, you seem, you seem mad. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So they were, I mean, that was like, they were, they were out of their, they were out of their league on those. But for strike zones, sorry, I interrupted you, what you were saying about strike Uh, zones. Well, I, yeah, I didn't have a blanket opinion that they were terrible. I, there were certain guys who were bad and, and temperamentally they were bad. They mm-hmm. would allow themselves to get upset. There were ump shows all the time and just all the, the overturning and everything. And the players seemed to think that everyone was terrible. Now, maybe that's just because we were in the dugout hearing the complaints. Maybe you would hear that in the dugout at any level. I don't know. But uh, they seemed pretty convinced that they were bad. And when they made mistakes, like when there was a bad umpire, it was more obvious that they were bad. And and there were guys who would like step back as the pitch came in and like just do things that didn't look very umpire-like. And so that increased, I think, the condemnation. But but yeah, uh, they were still much better than I would be. So, all right. I think we're finished. I like those questions. There are some good ones we didn't get to. I will star them for next time. Keep them coming. All right, you can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Today's five Patreon supporters are Garrett Allen, Michael Short, Alex Kapasinskas, Domini Banfield, and Cameron McSorley. Thank you. You can also buy our book. The only rule is it has to work, our wild experiment building a new kind of baseball team. There's still time to get a copy for a Father's Day gift. Check out our website, theonlyruleisithastowork.com, for reviews and excerpts and interviews, as well as photos and videos and stats. Please leave us a review on Amazon and Goodreads when you are finished with the book. Our Facebook group is over 4,000 members. You can join at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild. You can also rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Email us at podcast at baseballperspectus.com or by messaging us through Patreon. We will be back tomorrow.